This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com slash be here now. Meditation, you can look at meditation. I, I compare it to a keyboard. And on this keyboard, you have all these different things you can accomplish. Okay, if you want to get calm, relaxed, and peaceful, etc. Maybe you want to get clear of focus. Maybe you want to get into silent illumination. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe you want to get into Rigpa, you know, like, you know uh, luminescence, primordial luminescence. Maybe you want to, you know, keep going into investigating reality. And silence is so important. I mean, I, you know, you know, silent illumination is in, in many schools of Zen. I mean, they say that's where you're going. That's where we're going to go. That's the, that's where that's the destination is silent illumination. Hello, friends, and welcome back to the Creativity, Spirituality, and Making a Buck podcast with David Nickturn on the Be Here Now Network. My name is Michael Cammers, your host and monologist, and on behalf of all of us at Be Here Now and Dharma Moon, we sincerely hope this podcast finds you as well as can be, and we are grateful that you are joining us. Here at CSM, our guide, David Nickturn, discusses how to lead an integrated life involving spiritual practice, creative expression, and right livelihood with guests who embody and manifest these principles in their own life. And for this episode, we are very fortunate to have musician, author, teacher, and fellow podcaster Richard Wolf joining us. To set up this episode, I'll relate the tale of how I auspiciously stumbled into Richard's work, share a bit of his background to set the table, and then we'll get right into this delightful discussion. And in the middle there, there might be a little bit of promo stuff that is very good for everyone to hear. So a few years ago, I was searching on my music app for the songs of an artist that I was working with and saw that this artist was on a podcast called Wolf in Tune, hosted by Richard Wolf. So I gave the podcast a listen and really appreciated the conversation, which mostly was about the musical guest's spiritual journey. Afterwards, I dug into Richard's story a little deeper and couldn't believe that him and David hadn't crossed paths. They have so much in common, uh, both having very deep credentials in the music industry, both teachers of meditation who've written books about mindfulness and creativity. Right up front here uh, at CSM, we are going to wholeheartedly endorse Richard's book, In Tune. Music is the Bridge to Mindfulness, which you will hear more about shortly. So, I hope you can experience the same joy as me hearing these two connecting after sharing so much experience while orbiting around each other, all due to an auspicious internet search a couple years ago. 
And speaking of the internet and all the digital media we're ceaselessly immersed in, I don't know about you, but in today's attention economy with these highly addictive devices buzzing on our bodies all day, I find it more important than ever to have a practice where I can stabilize my state of being and set aside my ceaseless fixation on scrolling and experience the state of simply being. For me and those of us at Dharma Moon, mindfulness meditation is our foundational practice. It's restorative and enriching and provides me with an essential sense of mental resilience, clarity, and a touch less reactivity to name but a few things. All that being said, it can be challenging, so it can be good to get some instruction around practice. And so we invite you to join us for our upcoming Dharma Moon Foundations of Mindfulness program, which will be running four consecutive Thursdays starting August 3rd, 2023. And if you're hearing this after the first one of those, you can catch up on the recording and still take part. David will be teaching the program with the assistance of the incredible Stephanie Bellholm. It is a very reasonably priced program and a great way to go deeper and establish a practice with great teachers and a supportive community. I aspire to pop in on a few sessions myself, so I hope to see you there. All these programs and more are listed at www.dharmamoon.com. And I would be remiss in this brief promotional moment if I didn't also mention the Be Here Now Network. We are grateful to be on their platform. If you enjoy this podcast and are interested in engaging with a whole audio library emanating teachings from the world's wisdom traditions, head over to BeHereNowNetwork.com. Personally, I've been listening to Joseph Goldstein's podcast lately, engaging with his incredibly in-depth and clear teachings on the Four Nobles Truths and getting a lot out of it. Okay, brief promo moment completed. And now, a brief bio for our guest, Richard Wolff, for context. Richard Wolfie Wolf is an Emmy Award-winning composer, multi-platinum-selling music producer, remixer, songwriter, and author. He has collaborated with notable artists such as Prince, Belle Biv DeBoe, Freddie Mercury, MC Light, Coolio, New Edition, and Seal. Wolf's contributions as a composer and producer extend to soundtracks for numerous films and television episodes, including 12 seasons of NCIS, The Sandman, Oprah, and the NFL. His influential book, In Tune, Music as the Bridge to Mindfulness, garnered attention from publications such as The New Yorker, Parade, Mindful Magazine, and Spirituality and Health. The book serves as the foundation for his podcast and YouTube channel, Wolf and Tune, which also features his R&B-based mindful soul music designed to induce a state of calm clarity in listeners. Additionally, Wolf's course at USC's Thornton School of Music explores the harmonious relationship between music, meditation, and mindfulness, making it the first university-level program of its kind to delve into how these practices can mutually enhance each other. You can find out more about Richard at his website, www.richardwolf.net. And here we are, and the music has ended, just dropping into a moment of silence. Okay, everyone. That's it for the opening monologue. And now, on with episode 45 of the CSM podcast, In Tune with Richard Wolf. Okay. So, uh, welcome back, everybody, to the Creativity, Spirituality, and Making a Buck podcast. Special episode uh, with a new friend, Richard Wolf, uh, whose nickname, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to use it yet, Wolfie, right? Please do. Okay. So, we might allude to him as Wolfie. But 
uh, we've just been chatting for a bit. We have so many areas of crossover and people we know but have never met. So this is, first of all, I just want to say welcome to the podcast and it's great to meet you. And it's a thrill to have been invited and to meet you. Yeah. So, you know, we, we, one thing that we have in common is that, we're, you know, we're both full on professional into the music business, such as it is, you know, and uh, that's been our livelihood and so forth. But we're also seriously interested in the practice of, uh, you know, Buddhism and mindfulness uh, type of meditation. And uh, so do, do you, you're an active teacher in that you have a book out that's a wonderful book called In Tune. But do you run workshops and seminars with people and things like that, too? I teach at USC. I've, uh -huh. I've been teaching there since 2015. Okay. And teaching and meditation. I am teaching a course called Music and Mindfulness Strategy and Practice for an Ever-Changing Field. Wow. So Have that's it. It's, it's about yeah. music, the connections between music, mindfulness, creativity, spirituality, and making a buck. Well, and here's on the making the buck side, which is a light, I'm sure you understand, it's tongue-in-cheek. Uh, but... Right away, that part of my mind goes, that's a great uh, topic for other music schools. I wonder if you have approached other music schools, like Berkeley would be like a, a no-brainer almost to introduce a course like that. You know, here's the thing about academic uh, academia mm. uh, and the subject of mindfulness. Mm. This is my theory. Mm. That if you're in a music department, if you're going to introduce some kind of course, it has to be something that's geared towards improving you as a musician. And that is not what I'm teaching. I mean, it, 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 I'm teaching how to improve your life mm -hmm. as a musician and as a human being. And in the course of that, if it enhances your performance and you don't have so much performance anxiety, if you're practicing better or whatever, and it pays, you know, dividends in terms of you being a better musician or being a better music uh, industry person, beautiful. But that is not the extent of it. Whereas there, are, and I know there are a few courses like mindfulness, how to be a better singer, you know? So, right, right. And I think that's how they can justify getting a course in a, in a university. That's my well, theory. Well, how did, they, how did they do it at USC then? Well, I was teaching a course, music, media, and enterprise. Mm -hmm. And part of that course, there were five subjects in the course. One was non-duality and how <laughs> non-duality... <laughs> it sounds funny but oh, it's just you know, so you great can, <laughs> you yeah. can apply non-duality yeah to wow. art because you know you think about you know nirvana what's nirvana well it's taking punk rock on one extreme and pop melodic pop on the other extreme mm -hmm. and putting them together saying oh they're interconnected here because they're not in you know these silos that are separate and same thing with any genre where you want to talk about hip hop, you know, uh -huh. taking soul music, you know, it, it, blues and jazz, sure. and putting it all together, taking, you know, broadening people's approach towards art and music. Right. So that was one subject was non-duality. And the other one was mindfulness. Wow. And uh, after teaching that for about a year and a half, the head of the department came to me and he said, you know, I think the most valuable thing you can do for students, what they really need, is you to do a course just about mindfulness and music and how they connect and how they can use their musicality right. to get these practices because that's what they really, really need. So I think it was his, Ken Lopez, his visionary ability to see the value of this. And he, uh, and I did it. I was thinking, how am I going to do 15 weeks? I do like 
a little bit of mindfulness every right. course and, a, and some non-duality. Right. But how am I going to make this 15 weeks? But we figured it out. Well, you know what you do? You just write on the score, tacit. Oh. <laughs> uh, <laughs> like you want to explain that? I, I, <laughs> well, I just I was teaching that uh, yeah. this last week. I mean, it's not a bad, uh, you know, uh, way to explain meditation. Tacit just means be silent, you know, be still for this amount of time. It's a measured amount of time. Of course, many funny jokes about timpani players and also, uh, you know, the drummer taking a big drum solo and the, and the conductor saying, you know, I, well, don't you see what it says? It says tacit for those toe bars. He said, oh, I thought it said take it. You know, <laughs> uh, you know, there's a million versions and variations of that. But uh, I don't know. For me, what you're saying, I think, would be a, a short shot into other schools. Uh, I, I'm just... Uh, I think this way. I'm sorry. They call me nudgy because I just completely nudge people when I have a good, you know, an idea for them. So just, uh, it just seems like it would it would be a short hop towards presenting something like that in the music schools, and you're you qualified to do it. So, I'll tell you what we are doing though. Yeah. Um, I, I'm on the board of the I Have a Dream Foundation in Los Angeles, which okay. uh, does many things. But one thing we do is is uh, adopt classes of children in underserved areas mm -hmm. uh, from third grade and we follow them all the way to high school and then there are scholarships to college and uh in 2017 i started a pilot program for music and mindfulness but the person that was leading it left and then we we got serious about it uh a couple of years ago and mm -hmm. so we have a musical music and mindfulness program right now for fifth graders in boyle heights and uh, the USC Center for Mindfulness Science did a, a data research, and we don't have the final report yet, but the mm -hmm. preliminary results were that people, the, the young kids in the fifth grade that were taking the music and mindfulness course showed increased mindfulness, which shouldn't surprise people. Right. They spend less time on their phones, and they have decreased impulsive behaviors. So there is kind of a, a spread of this idea and it's on right now on that level. Yeah. Wonderful. And there are many opportunities sort of emerging in that, you know, one of my favorite um, photos on our, our hundred hour mindfulness meditation teacher training uh, landing page is a young uh, graduate of our program. He's 28 years old. He started a company called be mindful and he, he's a, a high school and college athletic coach. He's a tennis coach. And so it's all uh, mindfulness training for athletes in, at the college level. And he's getting a lot of clients. And um, wow. uh, the the picture is of a hundred lacrosse champion players, you know, like uh, the kind of champion lacrosse players from around the country gathered and he got to present to them. And so there's a hundred kids sitting in the bleachers of like a basketball court, like meditating, you know. And mm -hmm. it's just like, to me, that is... Um, uh, I know there is a dense niche of people presenting Buddhism and meditation these days, but the art of bringing it out to people who are not going to be necessarily steeped in it in the same way that somebody like you and I might, might go, oh, you can go deep into that. Uh, I think it's just a huge air landing pad right now. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. now looking at your space there, um, for those who are not familiar with that, what that is, uh, that's a bunch of gold and platinum records, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> yeah. So could you walk us through a couple of them? I robbed the warehouse. 
Well, uh, they're mostly from the same era, which was uh, the late 80s and the first half of the 90s. Mm-hmm. Um, these particular plaques over here, uh, which was, speaking of non-duality, the beginning of the com- combination of hip-hop with R&B. Oh, yeah. Because Beautiful. there used to be, and, and pop, by the mm-hmm. way. So it's hip-hop, yeah. R&B, and pop. The first record that crossed over to do that was Belle Biv DeVoe with the album Poison, okay. which I worked on. So you have the okay. Poison up there. It was sold almost 4 million records. Right. And and the beautiful thing at the time was you had, in black music was on one side, and on the other side you had hip-hop, which was all this underground stuff. There was small little labels like Def Jam. And sure. I don't even remember, Wild Pitch and Tommy Boy and little street labels that were putting yeah. out hip-hop. It was not a mainstream thing. Sure. It was very underground. It was just the voice of a disenfranchised people, and those people were listening and nobody else. And even, you know, the, in the black music departments and record companies, they scoffed. When I brought in my my artist to get signed, uh, we didn't have the support right away of the, right. the black music department. Uh, but we had the support of other people there. Um, and so with with that, in the, in the very, you know, with, with Poison, which came out in 1990, um, that was the first record to have hip-hop and R&B and pop. Mm. It was three members mm-hmm. of New Edition. Mm. And so they could get airplay because they had this uh, love for them in the radio stations, especially in New York, and where, where it started to take fire. So... So that's what these plaques are. They're they're from that era of the of beginning of the R and B hip hop crossover, and there's some Latin stuff, Barrio Boys, and and other stuff like that. But it's it's that era there. And what was your uh, role in in some of those records? Were you producing them, writing tracks, playing? Yeah, I was playing. I was playing guitar. Oh, okay. um, wah wah guitar because I had you know knew how to play wah wah guitar and funk <laughs> bands and stuff like that. But I was a terrible guitar player. But when they invented sampling, if uh, you got like four seconds right, right, you could play for four seconds. You sample yourself, so every right. chord, you know, you sample a different button, and and it it worked. And I also play keyboards, and uh, and my partner at the time, Brett Epic Mazer, he played drums, so we sampled his drumming. And he was a much better drummer than I was a guitar player. But um, yeah, so we did, you know, we wrote tracks and, and produced and, you know, did everything you do to make a record. Right. And are, are you actively engaged with the music business um, in 2023? What, what shape does that take for you now? You know, that's an interesting question. Um, because I went through after the 90s, in in the 2000s and up till very, very recently, I was very active in television, movies and television. You know, I've done a lot of stuff mm-hmm. in television. But um, I just got very, very deeply into this idea that uh, of teaching music and mindfulness. And I had resisted writing music that I was going to claim as meditation music because I was very sensitive to the fact that music is a bridge. And I didn't want people to think, oh, I'm going to sit down. I had a I had a, an Uber driver in Florida who told me he meditates. I said, how do you meditate? He says, well, I listen to Billy Joel. He's got this one song and I just play it over and over and over again. <laughs> and I'm thinking, you know, from my experience, meditation, you can look at meditation. I, I compare it to a keyboard. Mm-hmm. And on this keyboard, 
you have all these different things you can accomplish. Okay. If you want to get calm and relaxed and peaceful, et cetera, maybe you want to get clearer focus. Maybe you want to get into silent illumination. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe you want to get into Rigpa, you know, I, mm-hmm. you know uh, luminescence, primordial luminescence. Maybe you want to, you know, keep going into investigating reality. And silence is so important. I mean, I, you know, you know, silent illumination is in in many schools of Zen. I mean, they say that's where you're going. Mm-hmm. That's where we're going to go. That's the, that's where that's the destination is silent illumination. So. Anyway, I didn't want people to confuse listening to music and, and that'd be the end of it. That's the oh, end of my meditation. Okay. That's all yeah, yeah. I'm doing and, and that's it. Right. I want them to know. So now I'm writing music that I built in the silence at the end and then I come back with the music and I have guided meditations over it and it's with R&B hip hop. How cool. Um, yeah, because wow. no, there isn't any of that going around. Uh, you know, you have... yeah. New Age, and that has its, you know, kind of genre. But I was trying to, and I and I am using changes and sounds from R and B and hip hop in meditation music, and that's my main project right now. That's wow. my main focus, musically speaking. Wow. We have uh, uh, one of our young teachers, Jasmine Lamb, who's, you know, she's studied and she's learned how to be a very good um, you know mindfulness and meditation teacher and she made a record that had sort of more uh, some music in the background we generally at Dharma when we teach you know not to have music in the background when you're sitting but it's not doctrinal it's just sort of a sense of you know not trying to spill the space with too much uh, entertainment value and, and try to dry out a little bit but she mm-hmm. did it she made a record with a kind of soundtrack thing that was spacious and cool and had a lot of gospel element in it and, you know, I think there's a lot of room to, for people to, uh, you know, you get the ball handed off to you in a football game. You're supposed to run with it, you know. <laughs> you don't just stand there and hand it back to the person who gave it to you. So the idea of you doing that is I, I'm going to, of course, listen to some of that music. And um, maybe we could put a couple of links in, in our, um, you know, the text that it, that accompanies this podcast to, pick out a few choice ones for people to listen to, but is is there, is it easy for you to say what would be one that people could listen to, to check it out? Well, it hasn't, I haven't officially put it out yet. Oh, it's not even um, released yet. Yeah. It's not released. I released one single okay. basically on YouTube. I haven't released the whole project. I, I rethought. Is it on YouTube my, right now? Yes. Okay. What's it called? Uh, I forgot. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> it's called Darker the Night, Brighter the Stars. Yeah. Cool. Well, that's a yeah. quote from Dostoevsky. I think it was. Oh, Dostoevsky. shit. <laughs> well, we, yeah, we, don't we... get too excited. <laughs> but yeah, Darker the Night, Brighter the Stars. Yeah. yeah but wow. there's no, there's no guided. It's just purely music. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, and that's on YouTube. We could look at it right now. If we, if we knew that title, we would find it. Well, let's, let's spend, spend more time talking before we look at it. Okay. No, I don't mean we're, we're not going to look at it during the talk. Oh, I'm, okay. I'm saying for the, okay. for the folks out there, you know. Okay. They okay. Could go, they, you can go check that out on your own right. time. But for the full experience, you have to hear the, the music. I think some of the music, you need to hear it with the guided meditation over it uh, and with the built okay. and with the silence at the end. Wow. 
Um, yeah. Okay, this sounds very intriguing, and and it sounds you know uh, genuine in terms of you putting together things that are actually meaningful to you, you know, and creating your own your own blend, you know, right. and um, that I I think um, is going to be an interesting new area. You know, one one of the things about um, you, you I think you know that I studied with uh, Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche as my teacher. Did you know that? I I'm not surprised. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know you're an extremely esteemed you and your brother, right, Ethan? It's right? my son. Ethan's my son. He's your son. Yeah. Holy mackerel! Yeah. I I assumed he was your brother, of course. Well, he's he's a you know he's also a good friend and colleague, but but he is. I did How beautiful. Oh. I did I did be his dad, and I still am his dad, and. Um, his uh, his daughter's grandfather, you know, which is one of my cherished roles these days. So, wow, yeah, yeah but but uh, Rinpoche, Chungpa Rinpoche was a you know very innovative in a lot of ways. But one of them was that he uh, was really an artist and a photographer and a um, you know a poet and uh, really presented even the early days of him being here a, a whole window onto a world that he called Dharma art. And if anybody mm. wants to check it out, there's a little film you can find called Discovering Elegance. That's the title of the film. Mm-hmm. And it was an art installation in Los Angeles back in probably early, mid-70s. Uh, included flower arranging. He he was, uh, uh, you know, very masterful in, in Japanese uh, flower arranging. Uh, and also furniture and room set up. And, you know, mm. so one of the things he said, which um, uh, which I kind of, have taken seriously as he said the dharma in the west is going to spread through culture and art that's going to be a big vehicle for mm. spreading the dharma in mm. the west and uh, you know the the, uh, the idea of um well you, 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 we, we would go with krishnadas we were talking about krishnadas before this yeah. but but you know there, there was that wonderful retreat in maui and we would do music and yoga and some you know people are just convening uh together to share uh, a number of different activities that have a kind of spiritual dimension to them. And I think that's, um, I really strongly feel that's the cutting edge going forward, that in business. Uh, and then there's going to be the deep pockets of people practicing, you know, classical conventional Dharma. And that's good too. You know, you need yeah. all of it. But so that's, I'm, I'm, I'm very interested in what you're, what, what you're, I, I will definitely be attending to your, uh, uh, output there as as it comes out into the world. Oh, great! Thank yeah. you, thank that you. Sounds it sounds yeah. intriguing and and also I, I I this is just my impression, but I think I think it's fair to say that you're not just a casual peruser of Dharma and just go, oh, this is a new trendy thing. You know, this is something that's been meaningful to you for a long time, and you've studied and practiced it. So when somebody yeah. like that comes out with something, that's that's always interesting to check it out. Yeah, as I said, I resisted. I mean, I got some criticism. The book came out 2019. Of course, as you know, I mean, you may not know, but I finished it in 2016. But by the time you get a publisher, the, the editor makes you do a year and a half of re-edits and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. But but some people criticized the book and said, I thought you were going to teach me how to meditate to listening to music. I thought there was music, you know, and and I resisted. Wow. As I said, this whole idea of writing music because silence to me, yeah. you know, as a musician, we're sensitive to silence. That's the part, that's one wow. of the parts yeah. that that's uh, so common that we have in common because of our musicality. 
And we're able to listen to silence and through silence, get beyond sound and silence. Well, also the space between the notes, right? The space between the notes. It's the space around the notes, before the notes, (laughs) between the notes. And the notes themselves. You know, you know what really uh, is, I think you'll like this, uh, changed my life. And I didn't know how until I started to seriously meditate 17 years ago. I tried to meditate since, meditate since I was 17 <laughs> and in high school. And I went to Zazen. I went to a Zen center, Zendo, and in a college, and I couldn't do it. Yeah. Um, I just was not able to sit. I thought if I got distracted one time, that meant right. I was, I couldn't meditate. And yeah. I tried many, many times in my life uh, until I had a panic attack. And my uh, therapist told me, you need to meditate 20 minutes a day, 10 minutes a night, 10 minutes a morning. And I said, ah, I got to figure out how to do this thing. Yeah. This was, this was yeah. uh, I don't know how many years ago it is now. It's 2007. And uh, I said, all my life, I'm trying to meditate. And then I realized, hey, because I'm a musician, I practice. And they're telling me that this is just practice, a book uh, by uh, Minham Rinpoche. Mipam. Mm-hmm. Mipam Rinpoche, mm-hmm. Training Your Mind to Be an Ally. Right. And he said, it's practice. You know, it's like mm-hmm. training a horse. You just do it over and repetition. Sure. So, well, music yeah. is repetition. Uh-huh. Music is practice. So if I take that attitude and it's yeah. okay if I get distracted, I'm just practicing not being, you know, being yeah. distracted and then not being. And I made a world of difference. I was finally able to do it. Yeah. And and so I went off on this, you know, serious journey and it ends, you know, and and listening to silence is so important. So I was going to say what what had been in the back of my mind for for years since 1984 was Miles Davis. I had lunch with Miles Davis. Oh. And yeah, and Tommy LaPuma, you know, Tommy LaPuma was from Warner Brothers Records. He had signed Miles to Warner's. He was producing Miles. It was just the three of us in a restaurant. It was an hilarious time. I mean, Miles was telling us stories that I can't repeat here. Sure. Yeah. Well, actually, you could he, repeat them here because we're not on network uh, radio or television. <laughs> there's, no, I don't, I don't, I don't think know. there's any restriction for language, for example, that I'm aware well, of. Well, I don't know. I yeah. It, there may be other reasons it's, you know, <laughs> it could be. there are some great mile stories about everything from a lot of people. I mean, he was, uh, he was, uh, you know, uh, just to throw this in and then I want you to finish. Sorry, I, I'm not meaning to interrupt, but um, there's one part in Miles' autobiography where he says, well, this guy was fatter than a motherfucker, but his, <laughs> but his wife was skinnier than a motherfucker. Okay. So I, I left the thing going, well, is a motherfucker <laughs> fat or skinny? I don't know, as a unit of measurement. So, yeah, I think you can, you can, uh, you know, Miles is, a, in, in my world, is kind of a crazy wisdom master. Yeah. He's an adept. Yeah. So, so he, he had been telling these stories. I mean, one thing he said, he said, you know where I'm going tomorrow? I said, no, I don't know where you're going tomorrow. Where are you going? He said, I'm going to the Holy Land. I said, oh, yeah, what are you going to do then, Miles? He said, I'm going to do what I do best. And I said, what is that, Miles? He said, fuck. (laughs) (laughs) But but the thing he has, he stopped telling stories and he turns to me. (laughs) He stops telling the story and he just goes silent. And we're just the three of us. So we're all quiet because Miles, you know, we want to hear what Miles is saying. And Miles turns to me and he goes, you know, but the most important lesson I learned ever about music, 
I said, no, what is it, Miles? He said, silence. There you go. And something hit me then. Mm. I didn't know. It's like a koan. Mm. You know, it, and they said koan is like a red hot ball, mm. an iron ball in your mouth. Mm. But you can't spit it out. And you can't and swallow for, it. You can't, yeah, I can't. <laughs> exactly. And uh, I never understood. What is he talking about? And I listened to the music and I understood right. a certain amount. But it wasn't until I meditated that I really understood. Yeah. yeah. That's beautiful. And there's some... Um, it correlates with, uh, I've probably told this anecdote before, but the first time I ever got meditation instruction was from Trungpa Rinpoche, and it was in 1970. And I was a student at Berkeley College of Music at the time, and I was going to a yoga studio there. He came and did a workshop there, and then he gave each person meditation, one-to-one -one meditation instruction. And I got up to my interview. I, did, I knew something about it, but not really that much at that point. And I said, you know, uh, um, Rinpoche, you know, is it possible you could give me a mantra because I, I'm a musician. I really like, I really like sound. Mm. And, and he said, he just looked at me and said, have you ever listened to the sound of silence? And I had a double take because it was a big hit, I think, on the radio, right? Yeah. <laughs> I, I right. thought he was like yanking my chain as a songwriter or something like that. Um, but, you know, it was, uh, he, his instruction right away leaned towards the more Mahamudra Dzogchen spacious style of, even though it was Shamatha Vipassana, it was, you know, mindfulness, awareness, practice, mm -hmm. sit up, feel your breath, go out, mm -hmm. you know, notice when you're thinking, come back, you know, the basic fundamental instruction. But there was a feeling of like, when you go out with the breath, you just let it go. So he emphasized the out breath. Mm -hmm. And then he said, the in breath yeah. just happens by itself. There was a, a, a sort of gap kind of quality to it. So he was already introducing that idea of non-effort or kind of not, you know, um, open awareness style of meditation right from right from the first minute mm -hmm. um so the sound of silence of course what's cool about what you're saying I've, and we'll all listen to your record when it comes out is if you have somebody listening intently for a while and then you drop into silence without filling the space with applause or a next cut or a commentary that you've set the person up in a way yeah is that, is that the premise right. yes yeah? yes you've set the person up it's dropping them into Right. A whole different state of consciousness. And you've, you've prepared them. Yeah. Oof. I had one student tell me, by the way, that, you know, I'm finding that they, they, they have a choice to listen to the guided meditation with music or do it without music. They, mm. they like the music. Mm. Um, it's, it's kind of, I don't know. I think uh, Krishna Das calls it uh, honey, right? He, he says it, with medicine, it's kind of. Oh yeah. Yeah. The, uh, the, the uh, mantra is the medicine and the yeah. music is the syrup. Yeah. So in syrup. other words, it's like to make the medicine go down to make it exactly. taste better. Which exactly. Which doesn't make the guys in the band and the girls in the band feel all that great about what <laughs> we're doing. <laughs> we're just the syrup and, you know, he's he's the medicine. But uh, it's, um, it's not exactly my view of what's happening in that kind of atmosphere because I think the music has a sacred element to it just by itself. Mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. But more mm -hmm. often for people, music is kind of, you know, you're, you're, you're um, like I asked Rinpoche once, what do you hear when you listen to music? And he said, the mind of the composer. Mm -hmm. Exactly. You know, it's really like. Uh, and, and, exactly. That's and, the problem. You're hearing the mind of the composer instead yeah. of just mind. Well, I think he meant it more in the sense that it's not so much like 
it's penetrating through the sound and the contouring and the shapes and the busyness of it to like you're actually feeling the the kind of quality of consciousness of the person who who composed the music. Yes, that's the like, problem. Yeah. Why because is that a problem? I, I it's don't a think problem you... because you're not you're tethered to mm. this person's oh agenda. I That's see this person I, where he wants I, you to go instead of just being open oh, to whatever oh, comes across your field of experience. Yeah. That's why it's a problem. Mm. It's a good thing, mm. you know, to, to introduce you. It's like, you know, an appetizer. Yeah. Oh, get your appetite going. Sure. But yeah. but once it's going, then you, you want to just have an open field, right? You you want to be able to yeah. receive whatever energy field where it's going wherever it goes well kind of into an agendaless kind of space yeah and also choiceless. not 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 and also not a, a, a accountable or driven by one person's perspective exactly right yeah and by the way just to finish the thought about the silence so i think it was last week again yeah, uh in, in class i had done this guided meditation then there's a minute of silence and one student said boy that silence really messed me up I, I was, and it really messed me up. And then another student said, I had the exact opposite uh, reaction. This is to show you that everybody's wired differently. Sure. Um, but yes, the, the, the point is to prepare your mind in a certain way to be relaxed and focused and not, you know, uh, stressed out and pressed and all that. And right. then listening to music and then, oh, this silence. Wow. Mm. your palate has been prepared for a, an amazing taste. You know? Well, it's like you gave them a rug, a nice rug, and then you pulled it out, <laughs> yeah, <you laughs> which is that. different than sort of just throwing somebody in space. Say, so here's the rug, here's, you know, and it's a little bit like, you know, uh, tantric kind of practices where you visualize incredible, uh, you know, deities and mandalas and stuff like that. At the end, you, you're supposed to dissolve it, you know, uh, I think some ah. people think I've created a new reality or something like that, but it's actually just a kind of appearing and dissolving. Uh, and it's very comfortable with appearing and dissolving, but we're not. Well, that sounds fascinating. I, I'd love to know more about that. That's, well, the, the idea that the um, all all um, all practices I've ever been exposed to in a Buddhist context is not true of everything. Uh, arise from emptiness and dissolve into it. So, mm -hmm. so even if you get into a highly articulated uh, kind of uh, realms of kind of uh, you know beautiful qualities that are embodied by deities and uh, you know things where you're conjuring up the very best aspects of who you really deeply are, it, none of it is meant to be solid in the way that we're used to solidifying things. So you practice emptiness, uh, you know, just open space like you're talking about the silence, then you. Bring up the bodhicitta, you know, the heart aspirations, so that it's for the benefit of uh, others, and and you know that you make sure your heart's in the right place doing all this, and then maybe you do, you know, the practice, and then you dissolve the whole thing into emptiness, you know, and you arise fresh, and uh, any grasping onto that is considered not really part of the instructions. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was so tantalizing listening to you talk about the visualization of the mantras. Uh, of the, I guess, mandalas or whatever. Yeah. What was the visualization you're talking about? Well, in you know, in 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 tantra, in Vajrayana, part of yeah. the Buddhist program. I don't know anything about it. Yeah. Okay. So, well, just for, quickly for the listeners, there's considered three yanas or three vehicles in Buddhism. Right. Three turnings of the wheel. 
the Hinayana, which is held up by the Theravadan kind of traditions that are extant, and then the Mahayana teachings, Mahayana. which are global, every every you know, Zen and Zen, so, yeah. many many different traditions. Yeah. And then there was supposedly an after hours class in the Buddhist time, uh, which is a, you know more, more inner or secret type of teaching, in which a lot of different skillful means are utilized, including using the imagination which up to that moment you have used to conjure samsara and all the troubled kind of perceptions mm -hmm. of reality. You use that same uh, imagination to, to imagine kind of pure, uh, pure um, sacred uh, representations, uh, which are the deities. You've seen, I'm sure you've seen the pictures sure. and the rupas and the forms of it. Sure. Um, but none of them are considered to be solid. So this is where sometimes with the Hindus and the Buddhist Vajrayana, you get into a slightly different, uh, you know, None of it is meant to be uh, kind of um, uh, think of them as solid, real beings like the way that, that we, we think of ourselves as being, you know. Right. They're, they're, they're <laughs> yeah. ephemeral. They're, they're, they're yeah. um, spontaneously existing. They, they're right. made of light and energy. But mm -hmm. so are we. Mm -hmm. Sure. You know, we've become dense materially, you know, but, but our real nature is, is, is light and energy, you know. Yeah. Our energy field of consciousness. And music. And music. <laughs> well, it, you know, musical people, they hear music wherever they go. Wherever yeah. it is, you're hearing music. Well, Miles said that too. Awesome. He said he hears music in the playground, but not saying I hear a separate kind of music. He hears that as music, he said. Yes. You know, just the kind of sound. Yes. Know, uh, yes. So yes, that, that was the, you, you, you mentioned tacit. I don't know if that was, that was before we started. Right. Right. Uh, uh, I don't know. Uh, no, I think it was during, I don't know. I don't remember. Yeah. It, it, so you talk no, it, about it, it was during our talk because I explained it to people. I said what it meant. So tacit, you tell right. the musician to, I mean, John Cage, right. When he did the four <laughs> minutes and 33 seconds of silence, <laughs> the, the instructions to the musicians were tacit. Number one, tacit number two, and that's <laughs> number three, just don't play. Right. And so the, the the point is the audience is sitting. He was a Zen student. The, the audience is sitting there, and they're ready to listen to music. And right. what do they hear? Somebody shuffling their feet. They hear coughing. Right. They hear the air conditioning. The idea is that's music. You know, traffic. That's music. If you're musical, every every sound is music. And remember, Frank Zappa did that thing. America drinks and goes home. No, do you what remember is that? It? Well, Frank Zappa had one recording of jazz. In a club, but he turned up the ambient sound. Like, because let's say you're listening to, you're in a jazz club, like the Village Vanguard, you're listening from the bar. You know, you hear the music, but you hear the cash register. And you, so he just portrayed that reality. Um, America drinks up and goes home. Uh, I don't know. It's probably on one of their, one of their albums, I think. Um, but yeah, so it's, um, it's interesting that we do. Well, I, I, if you're like me, I can't stand music in a restaurant, for example. Mm -hmm. I, I would rather they just didn't play anything. But mm -hmm. usually they have terrible sound systems. All you know, everything's below fifty hertz and 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 loud. And then you hear the bass drum, and you're trying to eat like you know sushi mm -hmm. or something like that. It's stupid, mm -hmm. you know. So, mm -hmm. um, so you're playing with you know you you're. It sounds to me like you're playing with audio chiaroscuro. Remember when chiaroscuro was light and shade, light and shadow? In, in uh, elementary school, I, I, yeah. I failed art. 
I feel <laughs> those are you, you can't you can't fail hard. Did you really? Yeah. This is the only course I ever failed in my life was <laughs> a sixth grade art teacher. He was the art teacher throughout my whole elementary school career. And you got an F literally an F, got an F. Oh, it's deep. But light and shade, light and dark. So you're playing with sound and silence mm. in, a, in a kind of conscious uh, way that mm-hmm. is, uh, it's kind of form and emptiness. It's very Zen in a way, right? Exactly. Yeah. You, did you study yeah. Zen? Is that your training? That's how I started when I was 17. You know, but after I started, that went, after yeah, that. I started reading T.D. Suzuki. I read all of his books and Alan Watts. Uh, and Philip Kaplow, all the writings. And then there was, like I said, a Zendo that was around the corner from where I lived, and I used to go there and learn how to sit Zazen. Right. Um, so that was I, kind of my upbringing in terms of, and I've always, I mean, I've, you know, I've studied a little bit of Tibetan, and and uh, I know some of the uh, Advaita Vedanta, Sri Maharshi, mm-hmm. and a lot of, different people, but I consider Zen to be really, I don't know, my, my lineage. <laughs> I, don't, yeah. I don't have a lineage, but whatever there is uh, empty of a lineage, that's, it would yeah. be Zen. I mean, I, I still meditate. I have a, a, a Zen, uh, who, the former head of the uh, San Diego Zen Center has a, a, a small meditation group and I meditate with him and, and his wife, uh, regularly mm-hmm. and i love the culture i love yeah. i love the stories and the poetry mm. uh in the zen culture and i i i, I of course i i totally appreciate uh Sok chen and and uh, and rigpa rigpa's a, a real thing mm-hmm. so there are things in tibetan uh, but you know Tibet, tibet has a culture and and there's a culture of the chinese chan and and zen mm-hmm. and the Chan really was, and Zen really attracted me. Yeah. Yeah, and have you been to Japan? Yes, I went to Kyoto. Yeah. Uh, I had the sort of strange karma of teaching Buddhism in Japan quite a lot, actually. I was going there five times a year before the pandemic hit for about five years. And we have a sangha there called the True Nature, and it's part of the Dharma Moon sort of umbrella. But... Uh, it was intriguing for me to go to Japan and teach Buddhism. I would apologize profusely every single time <laughs> before we started. But the truth is that most modern Japanese people don't have, don't practice. You know, they have a kind of cultural, uh, the, the, probably the deepest cultural connection to Buddhism anywhere that you could find. But the average person is just, um, uh, you know, would say they're Buddhist, but they, they wouldn't necessarily um, be engaged in a daily practice or something like that. Mm-hmm. It's really split off, you know, from from um, the, the people running the monasteries are doing that for the culture. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's not like they're, you know, they're coming down and saying, oh, we're having a high school gathering and we're going to teach, you know, Sazen or something like that. There's mm-hmm. some of it, but not as much as, as, as people might think. So, um, <clears throat> you know, what what are you listening to these days? Is there anything kind of uh, that's did you watch the Grammys? I did watch the Grammys. Yes, what, I didn't. What did, what did you think? I, of I missed. It? I missed the most important part, which is Kendrick Lamar getting his award. But uh-huh, okay. but I watched some of it. Yeah, a lot of it. You're asking me what I'm listening to musically these days. Yeah. I, I yeah. Well, I'm listening to SZA's new album. Okay. Um, uh, 
I like her very much. I keep listening to Kendrick Lamar's last album. I listen to the radio, Power 106 and 92.3. But I don't focus on it like I'd like to focus. Uh, But I'm listening to it while I'm running or doing things like that. Um, I listen to podcasts. I listen to, you know, Sam Harris. Uh Um, But musically, uh, uh, Thomas Addy's, some of the classical composers that are going around. And uh, I don't know. It's just a lot of different stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, If they're playing Steve Lacey on the radio, that's what I'm listening to. Unfortunately, I'm listening to a lot of Drake because uh, they play four or five of the songs constantly on mm-hmm. if you're listening to those stations. But, um, I mean, he's good and all that, but it's too much. Right. Uh, and then things I can't, I don't even remember half the stuff. Oh, uh, there's, you know, some new jazz stuff, the Snarky Puppy. and uh, Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Oh, you know, I who I adore also is Robert Glasper and anything he does and anybody he plays with. Uh, uh-huh. He's in this, I think... Terrence Martin, uh, you know, those musicians. Yeah, it's... Um, but by the way, you know, I was thinking, you know, about art and, and what Chungpa Rinpoche said. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, you know, Zen is spread through art, you know, mainly yes, poetry, right? Well, poetry and calligraphy. Calligraphy. Uh, garden, flower, flower arranging. Flower you know, arrangement, yeah. You know, uh, Chungpa Rinpoche was into all of that. Like, we had... At the center in Vermont, it was a perfect example of this fusion thing. It was an old farmhouse, uh, you know, when we started it and then built it out. And there was a courtyard and there was a rock garden in the courtyard in the middle of this Tibetan-ish shrine room in the middle of Vermont, uh, in in the middle of a farm territory. So, you know, how people are assembling these things these days is going to have to be a hybrid. There's like no other choice. If you want to do a pure cultural statement, I'm not sure there's one to make at this point, how you would even do that. If you're a Westerner and you're just saying, I'm just doing traditional Japanese Zen and art form, there, there would probably be something disingenuous about it. Yeah. And, and museum-y, you know? So yeah. it, um, I think the principles have to be kind of like re-processed uh, and then, you know, so, so um, how people are going to communicate uh, uh, I'm assuming the underlying principles don't change. That's kind of part of where, that's why I like the classical study of it because I don't think it's about somebody having some new discovery and thinking of a new way uh, to, to talk about these kind of basic things, but how you, how you meet people's minds where they are and how you communicate about it. Um, and are the underlying principles the same as just the underlying principles of everyday life, which is my, my assumption is that also that, Business must have the same principles. Art must have the same principles. You know, truth is just the way the way it is is the way it is. You know, mm-hmm. so um, and the beauty to me of the Buddhist thing is it's deconstructive rather than constructive. So you get down to as you said the the ground situation, which is unfabricated. You know, it, it's unconditional, and then forms arise from that. So what you know, um, I, I'm. I'm eternally interested in what people are doing in terms of how they're portraying their their uh, involvement with practice and bringing it out into the world. I just talked to uh, Angie Cho on the podcast coming out, and she's a feng shui expert, you know. But she's a Korean woman who grew up in New, you know in New York. It's like mm-hmm. these cultures are really having a mashup right now. Mm-hmm. Well, one thing we don't have enough of is uh, Buddhist comedians. 
Well, wait a minute. What about Duncan? <laughs> well, that's one. Uh, I, I, it's funny because it, you know, uh, you know, there are, there have been a few interested very much in in Buddhism and meditation. Don't you think? Well, yeah, that's going back to Zen. That's one yeah. of the things I love about Zen is uh -huh. they have such a great sense of humor. Mm -hmm. I mean, the koans and their stories—they're—they're mm -hmm. they're funny. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. you could just read Zen comics and mm -hmm. have an epiphany. Mm -hmm. Well, that's interesting. The thing about—and I have talked to Duncan Trussell about this because I said—and it's true for actors too, and it's true for business people. You make a choice at a certain point, like if you're a comedian, if the driving thing is it's got to be funny, and that's the measuring stick that you're using, mm -hmm. uh, you might find yourself at a moment where you can be connecting to a meaningful communication that's not funny, necessarily. Sure. And then which way do you go, you know? Uh, and I guess that the Dharma person would go with the Dharma even if it wasn't funny. <laughs> There's, you know, so that's that's tricky because, uh, you know, if we have a goal or an object which is um, the or a measuring stick of some kind, it's hard to mix that with one with a kind of uh, understanding that is not fundamentally agenda driven. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I find it, yeah. I find it very challenging when you say the same principles apply. From the absolute to the conventional or the relative, uh, that's the toughest thing. That's the tough. How do you live your life, you know, when you've had a glimpse of interconnectedness and mm -hmm. emptiness and, you know, the non-self mm -hmm. and no division between the subject and the object, you know, when somebody's plagiarizing your song? <laughs> you know your instinct if yeah. you're practice you're practicing meditation is you know yeah. you're going the way of peace and you say well i don't want to you know but hey you plagiarized my song you know i mean yeah. uh, what what can we do and they don't answer. i mean at some point what do you do i mean that's very difficult well that uh, is profound and uh we talk about it and i have chosen this framework pretty explicitly and you mentioned the absolute relative truth Sometimes I overcook that goose. I like to talk about it so much, but um, in in the tantric perspective, they're considered inseparable, which is a little bit of an added thing. Absolute relative truth. You can't yeah. pull them apart. Right. You can't. So, right. so therefore, they're really intertwined. But there's a third <clears throat> truth, actually, um, which is the inseparability of the two truths is a third truth. Yes. Yes, they're 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 different, they're separate, but they're inseparable. Yeah, which is they're, like you know, then you really have to tune up the instrument right there. Talk about keeping it in tune. That's <laughs> you know not an easy one to to kind of fake your way around. So what it shows up like in life is exactly what you're saying. You have some sense of openness, compassion, you know, caring for all beings, and somebody just ripped you off. Yeah. Or and drove their car over your you. foot, you know, what? whatever. I'm sorry. Or drove, the, or drove their car over your foot. Right. Whatever form it took. Yeah. What and then do? everybody around you is saying, well, but hey, they, they ripped you off. You can't just let it go. I mean, you know. Well, it's not just everybody around you. You feel something too, no? You feel something, but, you know, here's the gap between what you're feeling and not knowing what to do about it. Yeah. 
you know, and not not wanting to create, you know, conflict. You know, you're peaceful, but you can't. I'm sure there are many quotes about pacifism uh, that I don't know mm-hmm. that say you have to, at some point, in order to protect the pacifism, you have to, you know, be strong and whatever. Um, I just don't know what they are. But I think I find that very difficult to apply yeah. the insights that you might get into ultimate reality and and live your life that way. And I think it's easier if you're like you're teaching and I'm doing this music and teaching. And if you're living in that world, it's easier to navigate the two, you know. Well, and we, we started DharmaMoon.com, our company, is not a nonprofit. It's a business. Uh-huh. So we run mm-hmm. it like a business, but we're trying to run it like an ethical uh you know, one, and I've looked for examples in the business creative community and, you know, when, when and where has anybody cared to try to blend uh, a kind of ethical, creative atmosphere with a successful, thriving business? And you know what I came up with, uh, among others, is early days at AM. No kidding. There's a nice TV series on it. You can see these people were artists. They were culturing and nurturing artists. They were letting them do what they do. They were making money. They were hitting it. Uh, they didn't. They had a couple of chances to sell out that they didn't take, but but they they were in a thrive state. And then when they sold the company at the end of the day, I think to one of the big I won't I won't say who, but one of the big commercial labels, and the, and they got reassurances we're going to keep the gestalt of this company operational. We're going to keep the vibe. And within three months, it was over. Mm-hmm. It was all about the money. So, you know, I'm looking, if my Holy Grail is definitely a blend of what you're talking about. It was an Apple Records, I think, originally. Oh, uh, Apple was Beatles. an attempt. Yeah, that was the Beatles. And they signed James Taylor famously. That was right, the first, first right. major artist. Right. Uh, and, you know, they were trying. There are people who've set out on the course we're talking about uh, to, right. to create, you know, uh, a cultured business setting in which uh, people's creativity and uh, honesty and, you know, kind of good nature is being respected. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it, it, you know, you could look at even company like Headspace within, within the domain of what we're doing now, you know, the meditation Mm -hmm. teaching, it -hmm. got to be a size, you know, it was appealing to people because they get a little instruction and it wasn't like a brain drain and it was accessible and they got to, you know, size up $2 billion. Um, Unbelievable. So and fast, yeah. Well, and then you have to look and say, how would you preserve the culture? Mm-hmm. You know, and you look at companies like Patagonia or some, you know, companies. There, there are people experimenting with these models of of like sort of you know holistic business model. Uh, that's that's the trick is that it's based on sort of you know a for profit uh, you know context rather than a non profit context, mm-hmm. and it's tricky to do. Uh, because people get you know a little whiff of like the other thing and they're gone. Yeah. I even think that Apple computers, you know, that, that Steve Wozniak and and Steve Jobs named it after Apple Records. Uh-huh. They did. Beatles. Yes. Oh, oh yes. I didn't know that. So they just coincided with that. Oh no, they named uh-huh. it after Re- Apple. And matter of fact, they had to pay five hundred million dollars to Apple Records for the uh, for trademark. Mamma mia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. I think what they started out, that there was that uh, idea. That, yeah, ideal. You know, he, say, he used to say, talk about non-duality in, in art, in, in the world. 
He said, I stand at the intersection of art and technology. Yeah, and I'm yeah. putting those two opposites together, the coincidence of opposites, Alan Watts says. Sure. I'm putting them together it's in a non-dualistic way. That was the, uh, I think that's still part of the culture. That part is still there, I think. Um, it gets challenged when a lot of money is going down, just like in the record business. Oh you know, as soon as a lot of money is going down, people come yeah. in who are experienced with that, who don't really care about the art. And, you know, I lived through, um, you know, you're talking about the eighties and nineties, but you know, in the seventies, there was a lot of idealism about music, the late sixties and the seventies. Mm-hmm. And then <clears throat> as it became a much bigger business, which it did at, at that point, mm-hmm. the accountants and, and, and lawyers came in. And the next thing we all knew they were running the companies. It wasn't mm-hmm. people like Lenny Wonka or Mo Austin or, you know, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, um, the, the varieties of kind of like artist friendly, um, right know people um so yeah i guess i guess um it's an ongoing challenge isn't it in a way and it depends what your goal is i mean i i tried to define success in my book there's a chapter on defining success on your own terms and it's not necessarily about making more money than the next guy oh no you know for some people it is but i don't find that a definition of success that i can really relate to well, look at the music business and the most successful people with the highest esteem, public love and, and followings and, and awards, Michael Jackson and Prince and Elvis Presley and Kurt Cobain and Whitney Houston. I could sit here for the next half hour talking about the most successful people and how did they end up with self-destructive behavior? It didn't make them happy. And they even Whitney Houston said, money, fame is not making me happy. I mean, these tragedies uh, tragedies just prove that money and fame go up to a point and then they can just, you know, turn around and just destroy people. So. Yeah, it's great to, you know, if you have a great artist for a lot of people to hear it. And I, I mean, I guess I can think of, as you were saying, I'm thinking about James Taylor for a minute in my mind, who started mm-hmm. off, you know, kind of not in good state of mind in the when he started in the business, mm-hmm. but I think kind of grew uh, as a human being also. Um, and, you know, still making great music doesn't feel leveraged by like, I gotta have a hit, you know, that whole, that whole thing, right. but, but a, a high standard for the quality of it. So I'm, I'm there's probably examples of the other thing too. Um, it'd, it'd be interesting to see who we thought fit into that, that category. Oh, yeah. And this is one of the reasons why I was always thinking that I need to meditate because look at the musicians that, I mean, this is not the only path, Mm. but they, musicians that have some kind of a spiritual practice could Mm. could be anything, could be Christianity, but the ones that, Herbie Hancock, for instance, good good choice, right? He's a, he's a Buddhist teacher, Tina Turner, for instance, who had to come out of that abusive relationship. She's a Buddhist. Um, I mean, the Beatles, they, they, they started this whole thing in terms of the West and bringing some, some awareness when, when they, in the sixties, when they went to India, um, at, at Philip Glass. Yeah. Uh, and right now you have, you know, Rick Rubin, you've got Kendrick Lamar, you've got Jay Cole, you got Alicia Keys. I mean, one after the other examples of musicians that have sustainable careers that are, uh, have spiritual practices. Many of them are meditative. Well, all the ones I mentioned are meditators. And that always intrigued me. How come these musicians, you know, Wayne Shorter, and they all talk about meditation, 
there's something there. There's some connection there between this kind of healthy, uh, deep relationship in their lives yeah. to the spiritual practice and the musicianship and the fact yeah. that they're accomplished musicians. It's a real, um, I call it the Rishi path. You know, it's like the worldly path, of the worldly Dharma path in which you're manifesting these principles on a very high level, but you're op fully operational in the world. You're not, you're not a, you know, a, mm -hmm. a, 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 a renunciate kind of practitioner. Mm -hmm. right. but it's a challenging path because you are tasting the, uh, you know, it could be poison. It could be medicine at that point, you know? It could be poison? Yeah. Fame could be poison. It could be medicine. Oh, oh you're saying that. Yes, 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 yes. You know? Yes. So, uh -huh. so it takes a kind of strong-minded individual to weather the onslaught of, um, you know, what I guess what Buddha would call the, the Maras, you know, the daughters of Mara came and went. Uh, the way I explain that story, when talking to a contemporary audience, I said he was sitting there and he was kind of achieving some kind of equanimity and peacefulness. And these women, the daughters of Mara, come up and say, you know, you could have a big palace, man. You could have like a big ass palace. You could have consorts. You could have a lot of money. You could have this. You could have that. And he had to kind of like, uh, not just repress it, but kind of really transform all that into something that um, he could see the illusory quality of it all, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. But beyond that, then you have this whole tradition that our tradition comes from is the Mahasiddhas. This is what Krishnadas and I and Raghu and everybody have in common. Our gurus back then were, were Mahasiddhas, were people engaged in the worldly, worldly way. They were not oh. renunciates. The 84 Mahasiddhas, Tilopas, one of them, he's the founder of the Kagyu school of Tibetan Buddhism. He was a yogi living on, on the bank of a river. So, and there was other ones who had, you know, um, uh, Saraha was a, a, a arrow maker. You know, one one woman was, it ran a brothel. You know, it, it, uh, it goes as wide as you can go with your mind that to live in, the, in, a, in a kind of manifestation level, but have the mind of a, you know, of a kind of stable adept. Yeah. That's a cool, that's a cool tradition. And it is the root of ours, actually. Well, that's what a spiritual practice can give you. You know, I mean, they have, some of these people do live in the palaces that I mentioned. Uh, yeah. Certainly, but they, they don't define themselves by that. You know, if you, if you're used to being uh, somebody that's relevant to the pop culture, like Prince was, for instance, mm -hmm. he puts out a record. doesn't matter you have $300 million. doesn't matter you can tour and get 30,000 people in the stadium to come see you if your record is not on the top, you know, of people's minds. If you're, what you're creating now is not what it was. And like, what's your purpose now? You have no more purpose. Uh, and that's the problem. But if you have a spiritual practice, you understand your purpose is limitless. Well, so Wolfie, if I could call you Wolfie, which is your nickname. Can I call you Wolfie? Please. That's okay. Yeah, I love it. Um, you are working with young people who are coming yeah. up in, and into the uh, this arena. Uh, and you're offering them a, a joint, conjoined path of training in music and also training in meditation. Well, I don't train them in music. I, I, but that's part of their whole environment there, right? That's part of that. I'm training them in how to use their musicality in terms of creating a practice for themselves, you know, a meditation practice. And also there is the aspect of creating what I call meditations on sound or compositions on sound and silence. 
and you know, in the traditions of John Cage and Miles Davis and Pauline Oliveros, et cetera, and some of the new people now. So there is some mu musical, uh, adapt you know, adaptations there, but the main focus is getting a practice, getting a daily practice, uh, a contemplative practice. And then, you know, I, I say the meditation is like a rehearsal uh, or practicing by yourself in a solitary time with your band or your instrument. And mindfulness is how you perform on the world stage. That's when you use what you've been training. It's really great. And you have a formulation in your book. I'm going to mention it again, and we'll, we will definitely post it up. And, you know, I'm going to easily and happily recommend it to everybody to just get a hold of this. So there's an audio book version of it for people who like to listen uh, in tune. And um, very cool cover, too, by the way. If you, can you move your right shoulder so people can see the cover? Yeah. They, so they, it's, a, it's a takeoff on a Zen uh, yeah. diagram of the stones balancing acceptance of musical notes. So did you think of that? That's kind of cool. Oh, I know. It's a, a, the publisher. Oh, wow. Yeah. I think that's happening, you know. So, yeah. uh, and you have a, a, a paradigm in there that you explore in called the 12 Bridges, right? Yes. So maybe could you say a little bit about what the 12 bridges are? Yes. So I alluded to before is when I realized that there was a connection between music and meditation, that I could actually do this if I just followed that road. And it worked right away. Uh, and the first bridge was practice. But then I saw, well, besides practice, there's patience and perseverance. There's also posture. You know, when you're a keyboard player, you you know, one of the first things you learn when is is your posture. And when you meditate, you're taught the posture, especially when I started in Zen, right? I had a very strict Japanese patriarchal master who was very strict about it, always yelling about me one thing or another. But one thing was the posture um, and this dedication. And then there's the harmony. You know, you have harmony of mind, body, feeling when you're making music. And that's the kind of thing you can experience when you're meditating. And that's that's the beautiful thing. When we make music at such a high, we, we experience all these wonderful things. And then we get off the stage and we got to live our lives. And it's like we're fish out of water. Well, here is something that you can, you know, use when you're living with yourself on a day-to-day -day basis. And so uh, you go to the transcending the self. And that's one of the, the greatest gifts of music and of meditation and mindfulness, but especially meditation because it could be dualistic mindfulness, not so much, but non-dual mindfulness. And, and that's, it's not about your ego. When you're making music, it's not about you. It's about the music. If you're trying to you perform, you want to just have the best performance possible. If you're writing music, you just want to take the song where the song wants to go. You want to help it go. It's not about your self-referential agenda. It's about the music. It's not about you. And so you're transcending is the, the is self. Is that the harmony bridge? You, That's the transcending. It's it's all related, right? But, but, it's all inclusive. But, but this number four was number four was harmony, right? Oh, I, I wasn't doing this in order. I jumped okay. from harmony okay. oh. to transcending the self. Okay. I jumped over a few okay. things okay. because it's my favorite. But yeah. but I can go back if you want to. To the harmony is you know you you, you know you physically right. when you're making music right. It's it's right. it's music is invisible and material and intangible, but yet it has very material consequence. It can make you nod your head, snap your right. fingers, so it's physical, mm -hmm. but it's also emotional. It can move you to tears, move you to let whatever, and it's mental, right? And and so is meditation. When you're really deeply in, in samadhi or in, in meditation, it's a physical thing. You know, you're experiencing something with your entire body. Somebody said it's not mindfulness, it's 
bodyfulness, they should call it. You know, you're well, in, in the four foundations of mindfulness, you have mindfulness of body is the first of, one. Exactly. So, so right when you, so, so you can relate as a musician, you can relate to this harmony, this integration right. of your mind body feeling in these states of meditation. And there's mindful listening, deep listening. Of course, that for us musicians, this is key is that we are highly attuned to listen discernibly to all these different aspects of sound, whether it's timbre, tempo, frequency, you name it. We're listening so intently. Why not use that talent to focus when you listen, to listen to the environment, to listen to, to everything around you, to listen to your inner voice, your inner sound, and your inner silence. Richard, could you identify the 12 bridges that you just, you know, just for people to identify what you're talking about? Okay, then, that was... Then they can go listening. in depth in, in the... In the um, in the book. Oh, you mean just name well. them? Yeah. Oh. I'm, because okay. I think oh, in I'm the sorry. naming okay. of it. No, that's no okay. Problems. But in the naming of it, I think there's a certain recognition people will have. Okay. I'm like, oh, okay, he's correlating this and that together, and it makes sense to me. Okay. And and so um, there's deep listening. I'm, I, I should go to the book. I'm <laughs> sure I know all of the. Oh, okay. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm uh, kidding. The sympathetic vibrations. There's transcending the self. Okay. There's trance, and I would have to explain what that is. Okay. And then there's silence. Right. So these are, I think, you know, what I noticed just from, you know, looking through that is that you took 12 things that any musician could identify. Mm -hmm. And you went, you could take these same principles as what we were talking about earlier and bring them over to the practice of meditation. And it's yes. going to give you a bridge. Yes. Maybe you, maybe you, it's been tricky for you to think about meditation because you yes. don't have a bridge to cross yes. to get to it. But yes. these 12 things, any musician would identify and say, oh, yes. okay, now I'm making correlation here between what I know and what I'm about to learn. Yes, that's been my mission. I realized that because of my musicality, after 50 odd years of trying to do right. this and right. not being able to do this, but once I realized, hey, they're related, they're not separate. This You already have the sensibilities and skills as a musician in this right. one practice to port that over to this other practice. When I realized that, that became my mission to let musical people know that they can do this. Practice could be so beneficial to them. Right. You built a bridge. <laughs> the, the bridge was there. I was just showing. I was just saying, hey, well, look at this. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's... Uh... Uh, for athletes, for example, they have another way of looking at mm. principles that govern their activity. And this is something that we've been just finding is people will make the trip into these traditions and then they build a bridge back to people who uh, oh. are, are your family, your kin, your your tribe, uh, whatever you want to call it. And you have illuminated the, a bridge where they can take what's familiar to them already and uh, and portal it over into something that is going to be a whole nother open up a whole nother um, dimension for them. Yeah. Uh, anyhow, I'm going to just say that like, I, 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 I feel really, uh, I, I feel comfortable recommending the book to anybody, but I think of the, of the musicians who are out there, uh, this is not, this is well thought out here, uh, Richard, that in my humble opinion, it's not yeah. just like, Oh, I've had, I knew this and then I knew that. So I put them together. No, this is very almost, um, uh, well, it's precise, but uh, it almost it almost like 
really gives you footholds. It's like if it's rock climbing gives you footholds that are well thought out, well spaced, well placed. And I think that anybody who's been wanting to learn how to meditate, who is a musician, I know some musician friends of mine, they go, I don't know. How to, they said exactly what you said. In fact, a very famous saxophone player I just worked with said, uh, yeah, I can't meditate because I can't mm-hmm. quiet my mind. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, you could talk to your blue in the face, but if you put it in terms that somebody's familiar with you, you give them a short hop onto it. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, I want to not um, steal too much of your life and time because this was a, a wonderful getting to know you uh, session. And if there's anything that, you know, we want to let people know about, depending on when the podcast, the podcast probably will be coming out in a couple of months because we have a kind of, kind of back sure. up. So I don't know when your record's going to drop or, or, you know, when that's coming, but we'll, we'll be in touch with you about it. And uh, I just want to thank you so much for taking time out of your obviously very uh, productive and busy life and, and sharing some of your journey with us here. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. It's been sincerely a sensation okay and incandescent yeah. finally meeting you after uh hearing about by the way i just gotta say i was in the audience when you got an award a bmi award uh for, for the most played music i was in the audience i remember oh, ASCAP. Hearing, yeah it was an ascap oh, it was ascap okay it was ascap no offense I was to in BMI, the, but yeah. you what no offense to BMI, but no I, offense I was to BMI, but you won an award. Yeah. Uh, you remember that? I'm mean, sure you won many awards, but that night yeah. I was in the audience, uh, and it, it it made an impression on me. Wow. Parallel universe. Yeah, and that yeah, was that, years ago. I don't know how many years ago. That yeah. yeah, and um, you know, we've uh, woven. I think we're similar in that we've woven in and out of the traffic in the music business, the film, and the television, and the record world. Um, and uh, not completely ensnared by it. That's, I think, something we have in common. We're, we're trying to, you know, have a genuine interest in it and relate to it. And But, you know, some people are just caught up in it to the point where they don't have any other access to uh, another way of looking at, at anything. Mm-hmm. So we, we have an ongoing conversation, Wolfie, and we'll uh, hopefully, I hope this isn't the last time we get to talk about it. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. There you have it, folks. Episode number 45 of the Creativity, Spirituality, and Making a Buck podcast on the Be Here Now Network with David Nickturn and our special guest, Richard Wolf. We'd like to extend a huge thank you uh, to Richard for taking the time to generously join us in conversation. And we would like to thank all of you for listening. We hope that you enjoy this podcast as much and more than we enjoy making it and that it has a positive impact on your life. We encourage everybody to head over to the show notes or wherever you need to go to um, get a pick up a copy of Richard's book. And also um, there should be links to Discovering Elegance, the Trungpa Rinpoche short film about Dharma art. And head over to YouTube and check out Richard's work, Darker the Night, Brighter the Stars. So, you know, we would like to thank you and encourage you to, uh, you know, subscribe on YouTube, give us a follow, give us a thumbs up on, you know, share on your social media platforms, give us an 11 star review on your pod platform to help us get the word out about the podcast. Also, it's currently the end of July 2023, and I'm gearing up to get the podcast back into a steady rhythm after some disruption. So please feel free to reach out to me at K at dharmamoon.com if you have any suggestions for what you'd like to hear us talk about on the podcast. And that's it. 
All that arises dissipates. And this podcast is no different. So one more time, thank you for listening. And uh, may you be safe, healthy, happy, and at ease. All the best, precious ones. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BeHereNow today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash BeHereNow.